We start our Friday morning off joined by Susan Johnson, the Wyndham State Representative. Thought we'd bring on the state rep to kind of wrap up the recent legislative session, especially how it pertains to folks in the Wyndham area and here in eastern Connecticut. Susan, good morning. Thanks for joining me for today. Before we get to the legislative session, though, had some interesting things going on yesterday at the Wyndham Senior Center. Do tell. Oh, yes. Oh, bueno. Thank you so much for inviting me on to your show uh, much appreciated, and we were really honored yesterday to have our lieutenant governor here, uh, Susan Bysowitz, uh, and she was here to talk to us about uh, an International Elder Abuse Day, and it was really quite informative, and uh, we were able to talk about all the kinds of things that can happen uh, uh, to people who are older but disabled, but not just older and disabled. I think that what it came down to is uh, there's a lot of things out there trying to grab everybody's resources, whether you're older, whether you're disabled, <laughs> or whether you're just trying to mind your own business on your computer or answering your phone. So we got into a lot of those telecommunication problems that we're having all over uh, America, all over Connecticut, and in Wyndham. And you know, uh, way now, it was really great to have people at the senior center there because there's a safe group where you could talk about these things, feel safe, and understand that you're not alone. Uh, these things are happening to everybody, and you got to watch out. And you had some quality time with the lieutenant governor yourself. Tell me about that. Aha! Uh-huh. And so afterwards, I said, hey, lieutenant governor, would you like to come on? Let's talk about it. And so let's talk about it. We'll have uh, lieutenant governor uh, Susan Bysowitz on to talk about more about elder abuse, but also something some of the things that occurred during the end of session. And uh, so stay tuned tonight at 5 for Let's Talk About It and listen to me and Mayor DeVivo uh, talk with our Lieutenant Governor Susan Bysowitz, uh, and we will be pleased to go into great detail. It's all Susan all the time. We've got Susan Johnson this morning. I'll be talking to Susan Bysowitz at 845 this morning. And then Susan, Susan and Dennis on Let's Talk About It tonight. Okay, so let's wrap up the legislative session, which kind of had something for everybody. I think the one thing that got my attention, I keep hearing this word over and over again, bipartisan, how the budget got passed by good bipartisan work. I don't hear that a lot. How did the bipartisan thing come together? Well, you know, it really was very difficult, but we did uh, work very hard to uh, find something for everybody in the budget. And uh, and that is one of the things that made everyone quite pleased with all of us getting along and doing things that really help everybody in the state of Connecticut. So while there were things that we really want to get to next year, and there'll be things we'll be discussing and going on the campaign trail about this year, uh, we did have a good bipartisan budget because what we did, I know that the governor <coughs> excuse me, started out with the uh, earned income tax credit and uh, he increased the access to that for people here in this state uh, through the state income tax, giving more money, um, almost uh, 40, increasing it from 30% to almost 40% earned income tax credit. So if you are working hard and you're within a certain income range, make sure, even if you don't think you'd get any money, uh, you have to pay any money, rather, you still will get money back if you're in the low and moderate income area. And, by the way, for Wyndham, that's a great thing because uh, at 30% with the low income tax credit, uh, what you get is about $4 million that is just spent right here 
uh, on businesses and uh, things that people need right here in this town. Because uh, I researched it, with the new increase in the earned income tax credit, it'll increase it uh, by another million or two. So uh, access to that, making sure everybody files. Uh, we do have the uh, the agencies uh, that do help people file for their income tax uh, credits. Uh, so that'll really be great for businesses. It'll be good also for the uh, the tax credit for child care. There's a tax credit for child care that was given uh, here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, and, of course, there was the middle class and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the um, income tax uh, reduction. So one of the biggest income tax reductions uh, for everyone. And so that's going to help. I bring more money into our uh, economy all throughout the state of Connecticut. I think the income tax cut, historic as it was, probably the thing that got the most attention. Maybe not talked about as much, but I know it's big on your agenda. Education, big issue in the session. Tell me about the progress made and the funding for education. Oh, yes. Well, you know, this is something I know that we have worked on very, 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 very hard. I've been on the education committee uh, ever since I've been at the Capitol. And one of the things we've worked hard on uh, is to make sure that we have the uh, correct amount of money through the education cost-sharing grant. And uh, then we finally had success and a promise uh, back in uh, 2017 where they said, okay, over the next 10 years, we're going to make sure we equalize where we should be and where we should have been with the education cost-sharing grant. So we are... And so that would have meant that we would have uh, we would have accomplished that promise by 2028. However, this year we were able to get it to, uh, done at 2025. So by 2025, uh, our our town will be equalized. Uh, and that means that uh, back in 2017 we were underfunded to the tune of 10 million dollars a year, and now uh, by 2025 we will be fully funded. Uh, that whole period of time will have been caught up and we'll get that whole $10 million every single year from there on in. And what was the effect of funding for the reimbursement for Wyndham High School? Well, wonderful. We, uh, we got 95% reimbursement. The traditional amount of money that we got originally was at um, the uh, 79%. And then we were able to get uh, the whole 95% for Wyndham High and also for the administrative offices. So the whole amount is great. It's, it'll bring in another $4 million for the administrative offices. And so we have completely uh, done the entire renovate is new. That whole area, that whole building is done at 95% reimbursement. And, you know, I do these things not alone, but with my partner, Senator Flexer. Tell me about the new pilot funding system. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, is has been a wonderful thing, and it's uh, something that we had been working on for years. Everybody uh, from areas like ours would put in a fun pilot at 100%. And then we had uh, uh, Dennis O'Brien on the council, Don Niles on the council, Tom DeVivo on the council a few years back, and they said, okay, this Connecticut Conference for Municipalities you guys, you know, you're not helping us with this, so we're not going to pay you anymore. So they got, they didn't pay CCM anymore. And CCM said, what, 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 what did we do wrong? <laughs> so they said, we want you to come out and help us out. 
Uh, and so uh, former Councilman Dennis O'Brien went to New Haven. He went to Waterbury. He went to Hartford. He met with all the mayors of the big cities, and they said, hey, we have to do something about the way payment and the way taxes works in our places. And so what happened is uh, Senator Looney uh, had put together a package uh, to address payment in lieu of taxes. It's a three-tiered system, and towns like ours, where we have lots and lots of state property, lots and lots of pilot uh, money coming into us, uh, we are put in Tier 1. Then they have Tier 2 and Tier 3. So we're the least likely in an, in an uh, economic sh- uh, slowdown to be uh, attacked or have any money taken from us. So that is still ongoing, and it's brought in another million dollars a year every year uh, because that's how much we were taken advantage of. Now, I do want to go into uh, changing some more laws on pilot, but that's going to take another, another uh, you know, kind of effort, and that is the properties that are not in pilot but don't uh, have anybody, uh, they don't have any property tax that they have to pay. Uh, because of statutory, uh, you know, okays. And so what we're doing is we're looking at trying to make sure we gradually bring them into the payment in lieu of taxes statute so we can get uh, funding for those properties as well. Susan, were there items in the budget that didn't make it into the budget that you wanted to see in there? And if not, what were they? And is that part of the agenda for next year? Well, yeah, there, that's that's one item that I would have liked to have seen a start on, and there would be, like, say, for example, some group homes do pay uh, pay taxes, uh, some uh, don't, and so, for example, I do see the, all the group homes in the pilot statute, uh, so that's one of the things I'd like to be able to do uh, next time. The other things that uh, we really feel that uh, have uh, gone without this time um the, there's uh, been really a lot of limitation in terms of access to increased funding for our nonprofit organizations. So we've had numerous uh, nonprofit organizations, primarily the organizations that provide care in the home to people who are elderly or disabled, uh, and those kinds of nonprofits didn't get the kind of increase that we thought that they should get. So that has been something that everybody in appropriations, and I sit on appropriations, felt that there was a real uh, limit on that. They did get an increase of 3 to 4%, but they had asked for 9%, and part of that is because they haven't had increases for a very long time. So uh, one of the things that's happened is um, we had a lot of people in, that are now in group homes in state institutions. And, uh, you know, back in the day, those people would have been able to uh, negotiate a contract with the state. Now they're spread out all over the state, and they're not able to get the same kind of attention. And so that's something that really we felt very, very strongly about. Uh, The other thing that we felt strongly about, of course, in being here in a university area, is how the uh, university systems were funded. And so we are very, very concerned about the fact that their uh, their funding isn't um, isn't uh, going to uh, step up to the point where people, uh, a lot of students, can afford their tuition because tuition will have to be raised, or they're not going to be able to hire enough uh, people to uh, teach or be instructors or adjuncts or professors. 
So, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, limitation in terms of access to higher education. On the other hand, we have free uh, community college, which is going to be a great thing, and uh, that is uh, continuing and expanding. And we have QVCC on Main Street, which is a fabulous thing for us. That QVCC back here, uh, uh, the owner of the building donated it to the uh, to the community college system. So we have had a great success with that. But we have a lot of things to have uh, do to do. So we're going to have to work on analyzing uh, the the issue. And the issue really comes down to the spending cap. We did have the money, but because of the spending cap, uh, we have uh, a limitation on how much we spend. Well, the harmonious budget battle from this year set the stage for a spending cap battle in 2024. Well, I hope it. I hope it's. Uh, I hope it's something that people begin to understand. When uh, Governor Weinker put the spending cap into effect back in the. 1990s, uh, you know, they, they, they wrote a constitutional amendment saying that the legislature could, uh, could legislate the spending cap. So, uh, and the way it was done back then was uh, there were things that were outside the cap that didn't count. So distressed municipality funding didn't count. Uh, paying the pensions off didn't count. Uh, and so then in 2017, uh, they put everything inside the cap for five years. So I was watching, watching, watching to try and get everything put back outside the cap, and I organized a group at the legislature to uh, get the get everything outside the cap. Well, lo and behold, they tried to get everything in the cap for 10 years. <laughs> so we compromised this year for everything inside the cap for five years, but we can change that. And I know Senator Looney had a bill Senate Bill, anybody can go and check it out, Senate Bill 787, and you can read his testimony on to why everything should be outside, these things should be outside the cap, the distressed municipalities, the bonding. That would add an additional billion dollars uh, to be able to fund the universities, to be able to fund the nonprofit organizations that really felt that they should have been, we all feel that all those things should have been done. We need to make sure we have our people funded at the university system. And uh, because we have we have about a thousand tech jobs out there uh, wanting, and uh, we have we have uh, Electric Boat, we have uh, Pratt and Whitney's, of course, Gear Aircraft, all needing high tech people, and we got to be able to train them and get them into those jobs. And if we don't, things are not going to be very good for us in the future in terms of keeping those big industries here. And that's something that we have to think about when we think about higher education. By the way, Susan, you said a moment ago, uh, QVCC, I'm looking across the street, I can see the new sign, Connecticut State Community College, Quinnebog Valley, and then below that it says Willimantic. We all have to learn that the school now has a new name. I've got the same mindset you do. In our head, it's QVCC, but it's not that anymore. Going back to the cuts to Connecticut universities, specifically, you talked about UConn, Eastern Connecticut. Did you fight to get more funding for those local colleges? Oh yes, we all had it. We all we all had a great deal of uh, hope, and everybody put in for more. Uh, but again, you know, you can only when you 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 try and put in for it on appropriations, and then once that happens, then it goes, and then 
the the very few people in leadership negotiate it with the governor, and the governor uh, can veto a bill. So that <laughs> that's how that goes. So uh, we have to be able to convince the governor's office that this is something that has to be done. And I think that we have we have enough legislators to be able to do that, but we have to be able to also get the executive branch to work with us on it. And I read some unfinished business include paid sick days. Where does that stand right now? Well, we do have paid sick days. Uh, so that is uh, something that uh, we have, we put into effect years ago. Uh, so there, you, know, you can earn the paid sick leave up to five days a year, depending on how many hours you work. So it's all dependent on how many hours you work. Uh, and uh, the idea was an expansion on paid sick leave. Uh, so there's a paid sick leave, but there's also paid family medical leave. So there's there's two types of paid leave. And paid family medical leave can also be used by the individual who, who has access to that. So there's two types. A lot of people forget that there isn't a paid sick that there, we do have paid sick leave already and that you can uh, get that paid sick leave, uh, that it's being taken out of the, your salaries and, and that sort of thing, your income uh, so these are things that you can uh, access now. Uh, so it was to expand that and to bring it up to date with other states that have now uh, better paid sick leave programs than we do, even though we were one of the first states to have it. Before we get back to some of the things that were dealt with in the legislature, Susan, tell folks about your trip to Annapolis, Maryland, a very pretty city. It's gorgeous there, and uh, I really uh, it was. Uh, so what happened is, right after session, uh, session ended last Wednesday uh, at midnight, and we of course stay a little bit longer and say, you know, say hi and bye to our friends in the legislature. Uh, so we do a lot of walkthroughs, and then um, then we get home. I got home about two thirty in the morning, and then I I left here at ten in the morning to go to Women in Government convention. Uh, to talk about health care. And uh, so uh, I was there until Sunday and then get back Monday. So finally had a chance to get a moment. But it was an excellent conference, and it kind of dovetailed with uh, another two conferences. I was invited to, because of my experience as a, as a lawyer and somebody who worked on Medicare cases and Social Security disability cases, but I was invited to be part of uh, what's known as the SEED a conference, which is a combination of the National Conference of State Legislators and the Council of State Governments nationally uh, to discuss mental health issues uh, nationally, to see what we can do to address uh, and see what other legislators have been doing to address mental health issues. And I want to start off by saying one of the things that's always uh, overlooked with respect to mental health issues is the impact poverty has on women and children who are in severe poverty. And in this state, we have had uh, one of the second worst, the second worst actually, uh, social safety net for women and children, the second worst in the whole country, because we had a 21-month cutoff that was put into effect under Governor Rowland. And I've been working for a long time to try and fix that cutoff. Uh, last year, we were able to fix it for women who were suffering in domestic violence circumstances, and we were able to get rid of that 21-month uh, rule. But this time, I was able to extend 21 months to uh, 36 months, 
And also, uh, one of the things that people must remember is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. In order to qualify, you have to either be working, looking for a job, or seeking Social Security disability. Uh, That's the only way you qualify. So if you're not doing any of those things, you're not going to qualify for the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. So what happens is it was at 44% of poverty uh, back when we first started. It's up to 55% of poverty. Now it's going to be gradually increased every year, according to the the CPI, uh, Consumer Price Index, up to the full uh, federal poverty level. So to only be at 55% of poverty, two people were getting, a woman and a child would get less than one person on Social Security Disability, SSI, which is gauged by the federal government, which is almost $1,000 a month. So they were getting, two people were getting less than that. We were really mishandling and mistreating that. Meanwhile, the federal government is allocating uh, uh, $260 million uh, from, for the TANF program, <clears throat> it's being, was being allocated to administrative, administrative programs for social services, but never going to the women and children who needed it. So being able to transfer that funding, understanding that we had the second worst program in the entire country, and the fact that it has a severe impact on children. Think about this. A child going uh, in, in unstable, uh, unstable housing uh, in a homeless shelter, not really knowing, uh, you know, when they're going to be able to have a place to live of their own. These kinds of things are really uh, running rampant, and there have been a problem for families ever since Bill Clinton, under the Clinton program, changed uh, this program from Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which was a program that allowed women to stay with their children if they could until they turned six years old and went into school. Um, uh, and uh, that was a program where they didn't ha- the money had to be used for the women and children uh, to a block grant uh, program where the state could use the money any way it saw, saw fit as long as it went to some kind of social service program. Now, mind you, too, the allocation of the funds uh, was in a situation where uh, we had uh, the money being given to administrative programs that help people, but not necessarily people who would qualify also qualify for TANF. So it really has uh, been a, a, a very difficult thing to change, but we are working on it, and I'm very, very happy that the governor is working with me on it now, and we have four commissioners working on it as well. Uh, the commissioner of social services understands this, and has been able to help out with it and uh, has actually put the TANF bill that I had into the governor's budget, which was a great honor and a wonderful thing that we were able to do. And then also uh, we were able to uh, work with the Department of Children and Families. That commissioner understands it and said, why are we uh, putting people in these dire situations when it's not necessary? Uh, and then they have to work with the Department of Children and Families because they don't have a place to live. So that puts an extra burden on DCF, and that's not right either. Early Childhood Commissioner Beth By also was very, very supportive of making sure that. Why? Because it's they need daycare, and uh, put having people in homeless shelters trying to get stabilize themselves and trying to get child care access 
is something that uh, really creates a problem uh, for early childhood and making those making the progression from uh, you know say birth to three to early childhood education into the school system. And then when they get into the school system, if they haven't had uh, the kind of you know support that they need, then they're going to be a problem in the local municipal municipal school systems. So it really impacts special education, which is something also that is a cost shift from the state to the local municipality, and which we I will be working on that some more. We did a little bit of work on that in House Bill 5001 uh, with respect to mental health, uh, but we also, and we had more funding going to the school systems for that, but there's a lot of work that has to be done in that area. That The special education funding hasn't been upgraded since uh, Meskel was the governor, and the idea when the special education requirements were made by the federal government uh, that the uh, situation was that, oh, well, we want to make sure we limit, uh, we don't want everybody going into special ed, right? So he made it so we have one of the most unusual and difficult uh, programs uh, to get funded in the state of Connecticut, of anywhere else in the country. With more funding for early childhood education, is that simply to give kids a jump start on K through 12 to get them a better start when they actually get into schools? Good question, Wayno. Um, what happens is a lot. There, uh, not every child starts out in the same footing, uh, so there may be learning style differences. And remember how we set up education back in the 1920s, where we set it up in a kind of a this is a rope. This is the way everybody learns, right? But that's just not true. Everybody has different learning styles. So we we understood that in the 70s, and by the 80s, we really understood what was going on. And we were able to be, be even more um, fine-tuned in how we do education. And so uh, every the, the problem with special education in the state is multiple problems. But, every for, for example, every district does it in a different way. Uh, uh, also, the actual reimbursement from the state is very limited. As, uh, under the Governor Meskel, <clears throat> hasn't changed uh, four and a half times the pupil cost before the state even comes into a into um, into having any funding at all, and so in the in the town of Wyndham, for example, town of Wyndham has to spend 120,000 uh, on the child before the uh, state begins getting giving any reimbursement at all. Then the state pays 80 percent, and then the balance falls back on the town of 20 percent. So that is a huge, huge. It, it's over overall the whole. Uh, every single town in the state of Connecticut uh, provides uh, $1.6 billion in funding for special education. That's the local municipality's responsibility. And that, I believe, must change because the, a lot of the municipalities just don't have the uh, funding to be able to provide the kind of, uh, kind of special education that is envisioned by the federal government and our state laws. Uh, but we haven't we haven't stepped up to the point that we need to be able to do the right thing for the kids, and it really has an impact on us later on. 
Wyndham State Rep. Susan Johnson joining us this morning, recapping the last legislative session with that bipartisan budget passage, which includes big wins for housing, social safety, individuals with disabilities, and education, as well as the largest personal income tax cut in the state's history. And we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about early voting. That was a big issue in this session as well. And isn't the bottom line of this early voting change to get more people access to voting so everyone can exercise their right to vote? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that question. Uh, yes, we really have a, a, a real uh, opportunity here to make sure everybody gets the chance to vote. A lot of people are working all kinds of uh, you know, different types of jobs now. People are all uh, not necessarily working in town. Back in the day when we had uh, regular voting, we had people who uh, everybody lived and worked in town and, and pretty much and few people moved out of town and they'd be able to maybe work nine to five or whatever they had a chance to uh to you know vote uh and now people are all over all over connecticut all over the place uh, working and it's hard for them to get to the polling places so making sure that we're now one of uh we've joined the other what is it 46 states and they had early voting and we were able to do it we because we the voters here in connecticut changed uh, the Constitution to make it possible to do early voting, and we uh, we changed uh, that. So this session, we were able to um, adjust our statutes now uh, based on the hearings that the General um, GA Committee had, um, and uh, they made it so that you could have up to 14 days for early voting before the election. And the governor did sign that, but isn't some of that involved in having the state pay the towns for the additional expense it's going to have to staff those early voting facilities. That's correct. Yes, the state is providing grants uh, to the towns uh, for, for early voting, uh, and, they, and, it, and they'll have, they can select places that are open more than just a town hall. For example, say a library could be a place where you could go, any, any town-owned uh, spot where uh, they could be open uh, more regularly, uh, and people would be able to go and vote that way as well. And timely, with the president coming to West Hartford midday today, can you just address what came up in the state budget and with the legislative session this year regarding Connecticut's strongest gun laws in the country? Well, uh, as uh, people may remember, I co-chaired the Public Health Committee during Sandy Hook. And during the Sandy Hook, uh, you know, horrible tragedy, uh, we were able to limit uh, the sale of the AR-15s, the uh, size of the magazines to 10 bullets, uh, which is uh, just about, just a little less than what military uh, people have. Uh, And so we had also uh, done a number of things with behavioral health, uh, and we're still, as you know, working on that. Uh, and uh, this is a problem all throughout the country. Uh, this time we also uh, added more protections for for ghost guns and those kinds of things. These are just practical things that we added to the uh, to the to the legislation we had back uh, uh, after Sandy Hook. And it's something that we've been a leader in. We've we've really uh, focused on making sure we have a safer state. And but we need we also have to thank our uh, United States Senator for his work on the on the national level, 
and uh, government, and also this is why uh, President Biden is going to be at the University of Hartford today, is to talk about the good work that we've been doing here in the state of Connecticut. We're responsive to the needs of the people here, and uh, we're making uh, people safer, and uh, these, are, these are rules that will really, really help. Uh, you know, keep us safe. We have the red flag laws that we put into effect also during Sandy Hook. Uh, so now we also changed um, how the permitting works. If the local community says no to somebody uh, because they have their understanding of that person's ability to have a gun, uh, they get the appeal is taken to the state. The state oversees that, and we have psychologists and lawyers and people who will do an evaluation of what the local community did. So we've done a lot of different things that help keep people safe. We also uh, limited access to guns for uh, people who have been charged with domestic violence. And so that is also something that will help save uh, people who are in those kinds of uh, domestic violence situations. We have, we've done a number of things here uh, that uh, will really uh, keep people safer. And mental health is a factor in gun violence, not the only factor. But on Tuesday, you put on your website, I'm pleased to announce that the Connecticut General Assembly has a mental health caucus of which I'm a part. The mental health caucus will continue to move our initiatives forward in our great state. Tell me more about that. Sure. As I, uh, so uh, one of the things that happened is I, inv- I was invited uh, nationally again to, to be part of this caucus with uh, be part of a statewide, uh, nationwide rather group of uh, legislators, uh, 40 legislators who are dealing with um, mental health. And one of the aspects that I just got through talking about is uh, the fact poverty creates uh, can severe, create severe mental health issues in children. Uh, and when they grow up, they have these things to overcome from trauma, from the trauma of poverty. And uh, then there's also domestic violence creating poverty, I'm creating a trauma rather, PTSD from, from domestic violence. Uh, then there's also uh, people that are born with, uh, you know, schizophrenia or, uh, uh, you know, bipolar disorder. And one of the things that we've been working on is taking a look at a mental health parity with respect to insurance coverage. And uh, that we have a real problem in terms of how uh, insurance is, is um, covering mental health issues. Year after year on the federal level and on the state level, we have mental health parity laws. Uh, they're, they're supposed to be treating people uh, with respect to a mental health diagnosis in the same way that uh, you're, you're treated when you have a fractured hip, for example. <clears throat> There's a standard protocol. Of course, <clears throat> with a fractured hip, you're going to get better. Uh, you may need some physical therapy. It may go on depending on your overall condition for you know, a while. But uh, with mental health, sometimes if you're born uh, schizophrenic or with bipolar disorder, these kinds of things are how the brain is structured. It has, uh, so it's brain structure. And we need to get into the brain structure and how things are working and make, um, make plans and coverage based on brain structure as opposed to uh, you know, making it uh, in the primitive way that we have, uh, saying it's somehow someone's fault that they have behavioral health difficulties. If you're born with a particular brain structure, that's that's something that over, more and more we're going to be able to deal with, uh, you know, with respect to how we deal with uh, other types of illnesses uh, with, with um, you know, some type of medical technology. 
Susan Johnson, our Wyndham State Representative, the Deputy Majority Leader in the House, updating how things have gone in the recently concluded session of the state legislature. A lot of good information, Susan. Thank you for joining me this morning. Well, thank you so much, Wayno, uh, for uh, having me here on your show. Really appreciate it, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you, and Susan will be back with Susan Bicewitz, Lieutenant Governor, on Let's Talk About It tonight at 5.05 on WILI.